John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 43 to 46. John 1, 43 to 46. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. 143. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach you and seek to understand this portion of your word, we do, Lord, desire to have this kind of faith and this kind of enthusiasm for the truth, and especially, Lord, for the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Would you show us, Lord, from your word who he is and how marvelously, providentially, over all the years, you have indeed prophesied and provided the only way of salvation for anyone, for anyone who ever lives. Give us this faith and help us to have the same mind, the same mind of Philip and the others. In Christ's name, amen. We have seen in this chapter that John the Baptist is transitioning and preaching about Christ. He's preaching about Christ, and as the forerunner of Christ, he is transitioning the many people who are following him to look upon Christ himself because now Christ's public ministry is beginning. And we saw that one day he is preaching and the Jewish authorities come and approach him and ask him who he is and what he's all about. And he tells them he's about pointing people to Christ. Then the next day, for example, in 129, the next day after he said that, Jesus himself personally appears and he tells the people who Jesus is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the day after that, verse 35, it says that John had two disciples, that is, Andrew and um, John the Apostle. And then Andrew finds Christ, but also he goes and tells his brother Peter about Christ. So now we have these three, Andrew and Peter, the brothers, and then also John the Apostle likely is that third unnamed disciple in this previous section. And then now from 43 to 46, we have another apostle, a disciple of John the Baptist, who transitions to following in the personal ministry, day-to-day ministry of Jesus Christ, and becomes one of the 12 apostles. We have Philip in verses 43 to 46, and then Philip himself he finds one of his own friends named Nathaniel and introduces Nathaniel to the personal Christ. Not that Nathaniel did not know anything about Christ, not that Nathaniel and Philip did not know anything about what John the Baptist was preaching about Christ. They knew and understood that. It is now that they personally, day by day, will be one of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples who are with Christ for the three and a half years of his public Ministry. That's what we are dealing with here in verses 43 to 46. Now, another clarification we must keep in mind. 
Remember, we have been saying that John the Baptist is not preaching anything new. He's not preaching and teaching any new gospel. What he is doing, just like all the prophets who preceded him, from Adam and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and all the rest, all the way leading up to John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets, who has the privilege of being the forerunner of Christ in Christ's public ministry, all of these prophets had one unified message. One unified message. That is the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ, the work of Christ, what he would do when he comes into the world for our sins, for our forgiveness of sins, and who he was and who he is. That is what they all preached. There was one unified message. This is why here now, when Philip and Nathaniel are introduced, they are introduced to Christ. They are introduced to Christ as the one who is fulfilling everything that was written previously about him. That's why it says in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, this point that we are making about this unified, single, solitary, exclusive, sole message throughout the whole Bible is one of the most important beliefs and doctrines of the Bible we could have. Because this is who God is. It teaches us who God is. It teaches us who we are. It teaches us the way of redemption. And that it is one way for anyone at all times ever to be saved. Now, let's see that this thesis or this premise that we have just established, whether it is actually true. We have been saying it is true. We have shown from other scriptures that it is true. But today, based on this passage, let's see how that is indeed true. Firstly, in verse 43. Verse 43. The next day he, that is Christ, purposed to go forth into Galilee. Remember, Christ has been with John, John the Baptist, and the crowds by the Jordan River in another place and Christ has not been in Galilee apart from it, but he came from Galilee into Judea, into the area where John, John the Baptist was baptizing. And this is how the transition occurs between John the Baptist and Jesus. But after he has accomplished his tasks during that time of the preaching of John, he wants to now go into Galilee. He wants to go into Galilee. So then the question is, where is Galilee and why is that an important and significant place? It's a region. It's north of Judea or north of the city, the capital of Judea or Judah, the capital city of the whole nation once and then of the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is in the south, but Galilee is a region in the north by the Sea of Galilee. It's in the north by the Sea of Galilee. So it's in a different province. It's in a different region. It was and it used to belong to the nation of Israel when they were 12 tribes under the kings of Saul, David, and Solomon. But then in the time of the separation, when the, the, the one kingdom was divided, that top region had a couple of major areas. And one of those major areas was called Galilee in that northern part. So that's where it is located. It's not 
in the hustle and bustle area of Jerusalem. It's not where the temple is in Jerusalem. It's not where the priestly service is there. It's not there. It's in the north in an area that is away from the religious authorities. And it's in an area away from the concentration of the Jewish people. Because in the north, by that point in history, there were many unbelievers, many idolaters, and there was even a mixed race of Jews and Gentiles that were living in the north, known as the Samaritans. And as we will see from John chapter 4, for example, it says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They avoid each other there. And Jesus is in that northern area, not technically in this area of Samaria, but still up there where there are fewer Jewish people. So, in this place, why is it that Jesus went there and why is it that his main ministry was there? Let's see from Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, why this is the case. Isaiah, 700 years before the personal ministry of Christ, public ministry of Christ, Isaiah was prophesying that the Christ would come from Galilee. He would come from Galilee or minister in Galilee. And we'll see what what he says. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times... He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. The he is God. He he treats it with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles or the nations. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Why? How is this all going to come about? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Of whom does Isaiah speak? He speaks of none other than Christ, Christ our Lord. He's speaking of the coming of Christ. And he says, Christ will come and appear and work and minister on the other side of the Jordan, around the areas of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, by the time of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied about 740 B.C., about that time, until about 685 B.C. So just say roughly 740 to 680 B.C. And by that point, during his own lifetime, Isaiah the prophet saw 
the northern tribes destroyed and exiled. He saw many foreigners coming to live there, idolaters who actually literally worshipped idols and burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their idols. He lived in that time to see his own northern kingdom nation wiped out. And now it's a Gentile area. And from then on, throughout history, it has mostly been a Gentilic area. Pagans, idolaters who live there, the land that's supposed to belong to the Hebrew people doesn't belong to them. That's what Isaiah says right there. Galilee of the Gentiles is going to be the place where Christ comes and he ministers. And he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. There will be no end to his government on the throne of David. This is why in the New Testament, Christ is called the son of David right here. This is one reason why he's called the son of David for a passage like this. And some of the Jews do, throughout history, they have, they believe that Isaiah 9 is of Christ, that Isaiah preached Christ in Isaiah chapter 9. However, the skeptical, pharisaical, unbelieving Jews, they say, no, 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 it's not about Christ, it's about King Hezekiah, Isaiah's contemporary. Oh, no, it's about King Josiah, who lived about a hundred years after the time of Isaiah the prophet. No, this passage is not about Christ. It has to be about somebody else. It could never be about Christ. That's the approach they take. They see the truth staring at them in the face, but they don't want to believe it because they don't want to put their faith in Jesus of Nazareth. So then they make an alternate interpretation, a false interpretation, and apply that passage to somebody else. Hezekiah's kingdom did not last forever. He did not live forever. And his throne, the throne of David itself, it did not uh, exist after 586 BC. After the destruction of the southern kingdom in Jerusalem by the hands of the Babylonians who destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, the temple of Jerusalem, exiled many of the people and even exiled their king, uh, executed their king Zedekiah, uh, and put out his eyes before he, looking at his uh, sons, they put out his eyes and then they have a, a, a petty king, just a token king, Jehoiakim, in exile. That's all. And they don't have any kingdom after that. No king on the throne of David. So Isaiah 9 has to be about Christ who will come from Galilee. He will come from Galilee and because he's going to preach from there. We'll see more about what Galilee's significance is. Then verse 43, back to John 1, 43. And he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Christ is the one who chooses his apostles. And it's not the apostles who choose him, but Christ chooses the apostles. And Christ says, follow me. He knows something of Philip because he is the son of God in human flesh. And he knows that Philip has been uh, an eager and zealous and true believer in the gospel, having followed the ministry of John the Baptist. But now he finds Philip perhaps also on the road back to Galilee and calls on him to follow him. And what does Philip do? It's implied based on what happens later that he did follow him. Philip is one of the 12 apostles. We have three 
lists, three full lists of the 12 apostles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's look, for example, in the book of Matthew to see Philip's name here. Mark, or Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. Matthew 10, 2 to 4. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. You see, in verse 3, Philip is mentioned. Philip and Bartholomew In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Philip's name is often joined right next to Bartholomew. It's Philip and Bartholomew. And that will be of significance in a moment. But we see here that he was called to follow Christ, not in terms of his conversion, not in terms of believing in salvation and forgiveness of sins, but in terms of this personal public ministry in being an apostle of Christ. That's the sense in which Jesus calls on Philip to follow him. Which reminds us, yes, Christ has said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 4, 19. And this is uh, applicable in a sense to all of us in a general sense. If we're going to follow Christ, we have to consider the cost and follow him. Because Philip has to anticipate that he's going to be persecuted if he follows this Jesus because most of his brethren, most of his Jewish brethren are not going to follow Christ. And he's going to see that because most of them did not follow John the Baptist. Most of them didn't. The authorities, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Herodians and the Zealots, they didn't follow John the Baptist. But the common people did. Philip was one of them. They did. But most of them did not follow John and they won't follow Jesus either. And Philip has to consider the cost. This considering the cost is for all of us, right? If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Which means whatever Christ wants of us, he is our Lord and Savior. He is our master. He is the one on the throne. He is our king, and we must do his will. Philip understood it, even to the extent of being an apostle, a faithful apostle, an apostle that would be persecuted. Well, then verse 44. Verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. He's from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida is a a town that was near the Sea of Galilee, um, near the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee in the north also. That was likely the town, and that's why we see Jesus going to Galilee and Philip, presumably on the road, somewhere along the way, going in that same direction. And so they're going to the north and to this familiar place. We now hear that he is also with Andrew and Peter. So Philip, Andrew, and Peter are all from this town called Bethsaida. They're in the north. This is significant, which we will see from the next verse. Let's see, for example, in verse 45. In verse 45, it says that Jesus of Nazareth, he's called of 
Nazareth. And in verse 46, Nathanael says, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now, why is it that he's called Jesus of Nazareth? And why is it that he's there again in Galilee? He's there because that's where the idolaters are. That's where the Gentiles are. That's where unbelief exists. And Jesus is there preaching among all those people. But was this an accident or was this expected? Well, we saw from Isaiah 9 that this was expected, that Jesus would do so. But why, again, is he called Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth is a town there in the north, not far from Cana of Galilee. Um, It is a northern city. But why from Nazareth? Well, the reason is in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, why is he known as being from Nazareth when we know that he was born in Bethlehem? Correct? So he was born in Bethlehem. We know that from Matthew chapter 2, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the prophet. But here in Luke chapter 4, why is he known as Jesus of Nazareth? Luke 4, 16. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. He was brought up in Nazareth. That's why he's known to be from Nazareth. So if you ask about Jesus' nativity, his birthplace, it's Bethlehem. If you ask about his childhood home, where he was brought up, it would be Nazareth. If you ask about his public ministry and the house that he had with his disciples, it would be in in Galilee, in the city of Capernaum. In Capernaum, in the region of Galilee, that's where his public ministry was, and that's where he resided during his public ministry. So it depends on what you're talking about. It was Jesus from Bethlehem? Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. Was Jesus from Nazareth? Yes, he was raised in Nazareth. He was brought up there by his parents. And then what about his ministry? His ministry, ministry and home as an adult, public ministry was in the city of Capernaum, in the area of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee area. And that's where he worked and preached the gospel primarily. Yes, he went to Jerusalem. He went to Judea especially during festivals, he went there, but he primarily resided there in the north. This is why he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. And then another clarification we need to have is he's called here in verse 45, the son of Joseph. The son of Joseph. Now, we do know that he was only the son of Mary. We know that he was only the son of Mary. But why is he called the son of Joseph? Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. He's called the son of Joseph because Joseph was his legal and adopted father. Joseph was his legal and adopted father. Not that Joseph was his natural, biological, literal father. Joseph was not his physical father. He was his adopted and legal father. And how do we know that? Firstly, Matthew chapter 1. We have a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. From 1 to 17, 
going from Abraham to David to Christ. It begins in, in chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes from Abraham, proceeds to David, and comes to Christ. Now look at verse 16. Matthew 1, 16. This genealogy uh, culminates in verse 16. And to Jacob, not Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but another Jacob. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary. So Joseph, the adopted father of Christ, Joseph is in the line of David and Abraham. You see that? Notice he's also called the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. That expression, by whom? In English, we do not grammatically make a distinction between male and female or feminine and masculine genders in reference to pronouns, prepositions and pronouns. But in the Greek language, it does do that. In the New Testament Greek of Matthew 1.16, It does use the feminine form of by whom. And the by whom does not refer to Joseph. It excludes Joseph because the by whom is feminine and has reference to its antecedent, the previous noun, Mary. It has reference to Mary. So by whom was born Jesus is not in relation to Joseph. It's in relation to Mary based on, without any dispute, from the Greek original of Matthew 1.16. So Matthew, even though he's giving the literal genealogy of Joseph from Abraham, David, down to Joseph, the adopted father, legal father of Christ, he knows, he knows very well that Joseph was not the literal father, the physical, natural, biological father. He was not of Christ. He says it in verse 16, by whom was born Jesus, meaning by Mary, not Joseph. Even though most of these names, was born, was born, was born, has to do with uh, father and son, father and son relationship. But here he mentions his mother. And then further, look at verse 18, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. What does the angel call Joseph? Son of David. And son of David because of Matthew 1, 1 to 16. He is the son of David, a descendant of David, but not the literal physical father of Christ. No, only Mary was his mother. The conception in Mary occurred by the Holy Spirit. That's Miracle. So, in that sense, Jesus is called by Philip the son of Joseph. Philip knows these things. He has to know these things because he's saying all of these kinds of things and these details were all known and predicted by the prophets. The prophets were saying he was going to be of Nazareth. 
The prophets were saying he was going to be born in Bethlehem. The prophets were saying that he would be born of a virgin. If you still have your place in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. This is a prophecy from Isaiah 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14, he said, The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel in Hebrew means God with us. That's why Matthew translates it for his Greek readers and why we have it here. God with us. God would come and dwell among us. That was John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The prophets prophesied of these things. They prophesied. This is why he's called what he is called. Being of, of, of Nazareth, being the son of Joseph, but they knew these other details. Philip would have known them. John the Baptist would have preached them. John the Baptist was proclaiming the gospel to the crowds. It says this in Luke chapter 3, verse 18. In Acts 19, 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. John was doing this. And John was doing it based on the correct, accurate, faithful interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, you might also ask, how about the name Jesus? Is the name Jesus found in the Old Testament? Is the name Jesus also prophesied? Is the name Jesus predicted by the prophets? Did Moses and the prophets know that he would be called Jesus? Well, what did we just read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21? You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. It is he who will save his people from their sins. That's why his name should be Jesus. Well, then what does Jesus mean? It means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. It means the Lord is salvation. That's what his name means. Now, the name Jesus... It comes to us first from Hebrew, then it goes into Greek, and then it goes into Latin, and then it goes into Europe, other European languages, then it comes to us into English. And by the time it comes into English to us, we see the spelling J-E-S-U-S, and when we see this word, we say Jesus. That's why we say it the way we say it. That's why it's spelled the way it's spelled. It first originated in Hebrew, went to Greek, and then Latin, then to um, uh, English, and then to, uh, to us. And this is why we say Jesus in English. However, this name Jesus, if you were not to send it from Hebrew into Greek and Latin and then into English, but go simply from Hebrew to English or from Hebrew, Latin, and English, it would be the name Joshua. It would be the name Joshua. The name Joshua from the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, that name in Hebrew is the same name as Jesus. The Hebrew word for Joshua and the Hebrew word for Jesus is one and the same. 
There's no difference. That's what the name is. It's just that to avoid us confusing who is who in the Bible and to give a unique place to the name Jesus, our English translators have chosen not to say Jesus in the book of Joshua. Or they have chosen not to say Joshua in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Instead of saying uh, the book of the genealogy of Joshua Christ, they say Jesus Christ to avoid the confusion and to keep a distinction. You see what I'm saying? Now, if this is the case, and grammatically and historically this is the case, the names are one and the same. If that's the case, let's turn to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. As you're finding your place in Numbers 13, remember that Philip told Nathanael that, his, uh, that he had found the one of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. Moses wrote, right? So if Moses wrote of Jesus of Nazareth, what's an indication of that? Numbers chapter 13. In this chapter, we have at the beginning a list of the names of the 12 spies. A list of the names of the 12 spies. And then in verse 16, Numbers 13, 16. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Why did Moses change, change Hosea's name or Hosea's name to Joshua? It doesn't say. But I think the implication is that Moses saw in Joshua a type of Christ. He predicted that Joshua would be an illustration or a type of Christ. In what way? Well, Joshua is the one who takes the people out of the wilderness, out of a barren place, into a place of prosperity. Joshua is the one who leads them to do that, right? And he is a prophet of God too. And Joshua is the one who conquers all the enemies of the people of God in the land of Canaan. Isn't that what Christ does? He takes us out of spiritual poverty, out of spiritual barrenness, and gives us spiritual life, the spirit of, of the water of life He makes to well up within us. And He gives us all abundance of eternal uh, uh, value. He gives that to us, just as Joshua gave the people the inheritance of the land of Canaan. There are many parallels like this between Joshua and Jesus. Joshua delivered the people. He saved the people from the hands of their enemies. They conquered their enemies. In the same way, we conquer sin, death, the devil, and the world. This is how it happens. And I think this is the reason Moses gave Hosea the name Joshua. Because of this. As a foretaste and a prediction that Christ's name would be called Joshua or Jesus. He would have the same name because it is he who will save his people from their sins. Another matter we need to consider in John chapter 1 has to do with who Philip called. Philip called Nathaniel. And in the book of John, this is the name of, of this disciple. This is the name of this disciple in the book of John. 
he called Nathaniel. Well, why did he call Nathaniel? How did he know of Nathaniel? Probably he knew of Nathaniel because Nathaniel was also from Galilee. He was also from Galilee. John chapter 21, John chapter 21, verse 2. Nathaniel is mentioned again. John 21, verse 2. This is after the resurrection. Jesus appears to some disciples. 21.2. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Nathanael is here called of Cana in Galilee. Cana in Galilee. So Cana and Nazareth were about three hours walk apart from each other in Galilee. So in that northern region. That's probably how Nathaniel had some connection with Nathaniel, both from being in that area, but also they were disciples of John the Baptist. They followed John and the preaching of John. So Philip finds him. Now, another matter we need to consider is Nathaniel is the name that John gives this one apostle. This is the name John gives to this one apostle. And it's likely he was known by two names. Not only Nathaniel, as John prefers to call him, but the other name is Bartholomew. Bartholomew, bar Tolmai, or in English it has come as Bartholomew, that this is Nathaniel, bar meaning son in Aramaic. The Aramaic word for son or son of is bar. So bar Tolmai, Ptolemy. That's probably the longer form. So Nathaniel, the son of Ptolemy, or Ptolemy, is likely what Nathaniel's full name was. Now, does that ring a bell? In Matthew, we read, and if we see Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the list of the names of the 12 apostles, Philip and Bartholomew go hand in hand in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It will usually say Philip and Bartholomew. Philip and Bartholomew. And why? Because Philip knew this Nathaniel Bartholomew from that northern region and from the region or from the preaching of John the Baptist. This is likely the reason why he finds Nathaniel to tell him, a friend, somebody acquainted with him about Christ. He had a desire, a zeal to do so. Just as earlier Andrew wanted to tell his brother, now Philip wants to tell one of his friends, acquaintances about Christ. And then we find also now in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Here, this is actually the central part of verse 45. The central part of verse 45 is that Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote of this Jesus of Nazareth. We do know from Matthew, Matthew chapter Matthew chapter 2 and verse 23. The last verse of the book of Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. 2.23. Matthew also confirms that Jesus resided or lived in Nazareth. Matthew 2.23. And came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled he shall be called a Nazarene. He shall be called a Nazarene. He's called a Nazarene because the prophets of the Old Testament 
predicted that he would go up there and live in Galilee and specifically in the town of Nazareth. This is why he's called Jesus of Nazareth because he resided there, but we're speaking here of the prophecy of it. You see, it's not a new idea because the prophets of the Old Testament were predicting such an event. That's the point Philip is making. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. The prophets predicted these things so the people were not stunned or surprised because they had heard of it before. At least those who were listening, those who were paying attention, they had heard of it before. And now it is being fulfilled. Okay, now let's take a journey through Moses. Let's take a journey through Moses to see some of what Moses said in the prophets. Firstly, I want us to see, just turn back a page, uh, keep your hand in John, and to turn back a page to see that Jesus says the same in Luke 24. Luke 24 25, Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Christ rebukes these disciples for not believing everything that the prophets said because they were surprised and bewildered that the women came and reported that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they were astonished and they were incredulous about it. But Jesus says to them, you are foolish, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. It was necessary. Was it not necessary for him to suffer and enter into his glory? That is, wasn't he supposed to die and rise again? And then where does he begin? He begins with Moses, and then he goes through the prophets, the rest of the prophets, he means. Moses was a prophet, no doubt, but Moses was the fundamental and central prophet who wrote a significant portion of the Bible. That's why he's often referred to as simply Moses and the prophets, that is, all the rest who succeeded him after his lifetime. So, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Christ explained what was in all the scriptures. That's why Philip is able to tell Nathaniel, if they had a proper education in the Old Testament, they would have seen these things and it would not be a complete surprise that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Galilee, or of Nazareth in Galilee, that he would be crucified, that he would be buried for three days, that he would rise from the dead, that he would ascend into heaven, that he would come again, and he would be the judge of all the, the earth. Nothing like that would be a surprise to them if they were paying attention to the words of the Old Testament. Now, I started there before we go to the book of Genesis. And why? Now we can go to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3. I started there because Jesus, he began with Moses. If Jesus began with Moses... We have to begin in the book of Genesis, which Moses wrote. He began here in the book of Genesis, most likely. Now, we don't know which scriptures Jesus explained to them, but these are among some of them. This is in no way an exhaustive 
We're just tipping, uh, touching the tip of the iceberg. That's all we're doing here, even with the examples we cite. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Who is this seed of the woman? It says, between your seed and her seed. Her seed. It's a curse against Satan. But who is the seed of a woman who is going to crush Satan? It says in Galatians 4.4, In the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul says, born of a woman. And we saw from Matthew 1.16, the husband of Mary, by whom was born the Christ. By whom? By Mary was born Christ. Here in Genesis 3.15, this offspring of the woman is going to be the one who crushes the head of Satan. Romans 16.20, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 1 John 3.8, The Son of God appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8, He appeared in order that he might destroy the works of the devil. This is when it is first predicted. Look also, look also in the, in the case of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. We do know, as we go from Adam, that the line of Adam goes from Adam, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then among the sons of Jacob, he had 12. They became tribes. But one son was named Judah. And in that time, Jacob predicts, uh, being a prophet, predicts that his son Judah would have the Christ. Would have the Christ. Genesis 49, verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter, the kingly scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, to Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the peoples. The obedience of the nations, the obedience of the peoples, they will submit to Shiloh who is going to come. Shiloh who is coming. In the Bible, after this point, and into the New Testament, he who is to come, the coming one. Are you the coming one? The people asked John the Baptist, or shall we look for someone else? Why the coming one? Because Shiloh is to come. The Messiah is to come. And when Messiah comes, not just Jews, but the peoples of the world, the peoples of the earth, the nations of the earth will obey him. They will obey Christ. That's in Genesis 49, verse 10. Further, what about in the book of Numbers? Look at the book of Numbers. Book of Numbers, chapter 24. 
The book of Numbers, chapter 24. At this point, the nation of Israel is in the wilderness, and a false prophet, a diviner, a medium, um, um, he's a sorcerer, he wants to pronounce a curse on Israel and get rid of Israel completely. He wants to wipe out the nation of Israel. But God prevents him from doing so. He prevents him from doing so. And instead of letting him destroy and wipe out the nation of Israel, he makes this false prophet say good things about Israel. And among the good things, Numbers 24, 17. Numbers 24, 17. This is the false prophet by the Holy Spirit saying the following. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Well, Balaam says, I see him, I behold him, not now, not near. It's going to be in the future. And who is he? He's a star and a scepter from the nation of Israel. And he is actually going to crush Moab. Moab, you just hired me to curse Israel. But actually, I'm blessing Israel by the Spirit of God. Numbers uh, 24 verse 2 says the Spirit of God came upon him. I'm blessing Israel, and not only am I blessing Israel, but Messiah, Christ, is going to come from Israel. And when Christ comes from Israel, He's going to wipe people out like you, O king of Moab. He's going to crush your own nation. He's going to judge your nation of Moab. This is a prophecy of Christ, a prediction of the coming of Christ. Another one in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15. 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your own countrymen, and you shall listen to him. It says, Moses is preaching to the people, and he says, God's going to raise up a prophet like me, from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Look at verse 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Well, who is this prophet? He doesn't mean Joshua. He doesn't mean David. He doesn't mean Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha. He doesn't mean anybody like that. He means Christ. Acts chapter 3 says, The Lord your God, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. This is the fulfillment of it. Christ is the one that Moses preached. He preached Christ and said, Christ would be raised up as a prophet. Of course, he is the supreme prophet who delivers the oracles of God from heaven to earth. 
Further, is there more evidence throughout the Old Testament? Indeed. What about 1 Samuel? What about 1 Samuel? In the book of 1 Samuel, we have a woman. She's the wife of Elkanah. The wife of Elkanah, a woman who says the following. She says the following. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and will exalt the horn of his anointed one, or his Christ. Anointed one means Christ, Messiah. She's saying that God is going to contend. The Lord is going to contend. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Lord will give strength to his king. Well, who's the king of the Father that's going to judge the ends of the earth? And who is the anointed one of the Father who's going to judge the ends of the earth? Who's, that is Christ. She's saying she believes in the second coming of Christ to judge the world. She believes in the second coming of Christ to judge the world. She knew the word Christ. She knew the name Christ. She uses it in 1 Samuel 2.10. And I said that this is a woman. I say this because some people think that it's only the sophisticated, only the extremely intelligent, only the men, or only the priests, only they knew about some of these things, but nobody else knew about it. Well, they would have been very miserable teachers if they didn't teach their people what they knew, right? They would have been very snobbish and elitist if they didn't teach their people what they knew so that their people could rejoice in the same truth that they have, right? And in this case, we know Hannah knew, and she was a woman. She knew. And speaking of that, let's go back um, a page or two to the book of Ruth. Remember, Ruth was from Moab, and Boaz was from Judah. Boaz marries Ruth, Right? And this is a significant marriage. Why is this a significant marriage here in the Old Testament? Why so much attention to it? Why this book dedicated and named after Ruth, who was a foreigner, a Moabitess, who used to worship idols, but not now. Why? When they get married, when they get married, notice the townsmen and the women who help Ruth with the birth of the child. Notice what they say. The townsmen and the women. Ruth 4, 11. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. Remember we read in Genesis 49 about Judah? Which son of Judah would be the ancestor of Christ? Well, we find... An odd incident, a notorious and odd incident that occurred in the book of Genesis chapter 38, Judah and Tamar, their relationship produced a man named Perez. Perez. Not Judah's wife, but this woman, Tamar. It was an illicit relationship, but produced Perez. And why do these people, the townsmen, And the women, why do they all know and think and ponder the significance of Judah and his son Perez, who was born as an illegitimate child? Why? They know it because they understand the prophets are preaching, so-and-so's an ancestor, so-and-so's an ancestor. It has to happen this way. It has to happen that way. The prophets are preaching and teaching the people that. That's why they are rejoicing in this marriage between Boaz and Ruth, and even in Perez, and the son Obed that came from Boaz and Ruth. He's an ancestor of Jesse and David, and David is an ancestor of Christ. You see what I'm saying? Even the common people, this is another example of the common people who understood, just as Nathan, I'm sorry, uh, Nathaniel and Philip, Andrew and Peter, they were common people. They were not priests, they were not Levites, but they understood. Why? Because the prophets of the Old Testament were teaching the people these kinds of truths about the coming of Christ. Whether it's in Moses or in subsequent prophets, such as in the book of Samuel or anywhere else, throughout the Old Testament, they were preaching Christ. That's what Philip is saying. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then finally, we have verse 46. Nathanael said to him, John 1, 46, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What is Nathan, or Nathaniel's objection? Well, this is an obscure town. It's a small place. It's an insignificant town. There are no kings. There are no palaces there. There is no fortress over there. There is no great wealth over there. There aren't mighty men over there. There aren't any famous soldiers who hail from there. On and on and on, they could say, right? There's no major university that's in the town of Nazareth, correct? There's no major newspaper that produces its uh, newspapers and has a printing press in Nazareth. There is no reason why Nazareth should be on the map. But what's Nathaniel's problem? That's the way God works, right? There were not many noble among you, among you not many mighty, Right? Not many of means among you, not many wise among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul the Apostle says, that's not the way God works. 
God doesn't work that way. And if you get that off your chest, if you get that off your mind, that God doesn't work that way, and you understand what the truth of God is, what God's actually saying, then it is no problem for you to believe. It doesn't, it's not a problem at all for you to believe. If this is what the Word of God says, this is what the prophets say, this is what the apostles say, okay, then I believe it. I'll obey it. I'll do it. But the hang-up is usually with people, initially with Nathaniel. We'll see that he overcomes it quickly in the next paragraph. Next time we'll see. He overcomes it quickly, but his initial objection, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He shouldn't have had that objection. But then how does Philip meet that objection? With the simple words, come and see. Come and see. Uh, this is actually also a Jewish and rabbinic, the, the Jewish teachers would also say this in terms of checking things out and investigation. Come and see. Well, Philip has this and he uses this here. Nathaniel, you know we're talking about the law, we're talking about the prophets. You don't understand, you don't know, but come and see. So Philip is an evidentialist in the sense that, well, if you have objections... Well, let me lead you to the truth. Let me take you to the water. Let me show you where the source is, where the resource is, and you can see it with your own eyes. You can touch and you can feel. This is similar to Thomas. Unless I see him, I will not believe, right? Thomas, after the resurrection, Thomas did then see, and then he believed. He did. And this is the same throughout. The Bible calls on us constantly to come and see. For it was not cleverly devised tales which we proclaim to you when we made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter says, 2 Peter 1.16. It is the eyewitness, verifiable, truthful, reliable account, historical account that we find in the Bible and the personal uh, incidents that occur here throughout the Bible that actually happened and that give us confidence that we should believe what we have here. And if a skeptic today does not want to believe it, I'd like to see what his values are. I'd like to see the way he lives. And I'd like to see if he is willing to live and die for the truth the way the apostles did the way the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul, nobody doubts his existence in history. And nobody doubts some of the letters that he wrote. Even skeptical liberal scholars of the New Testament don't doubt that Paul wrote certain letters, such as Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. They don't doubt that. So if we take that evidence of the Apostle Paul and the way he lived and the way he died to account, he, he is in no comparison to any skeptic throughout history. I would rather believe what the Apostle Paul says about what he saw and what he experienced in his life than any skeptic of today, often who's trying to sell his book and trying to throw uh, a wrench into things or, or trying to get on television. He's trying to sell a book because he's trying to make money and retire early in life. That's often what happens with these so-called scholars who publicize their findings. No, I'm going to believe the Apostle Paul who said, when he also in his own way said, come and see, 
Galatians 1, 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Yes. It says, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Galatians six seventeen. Yes, I'm going to believe the Apostle Paul. I'm going to believe the, the rest of the apostles and the prophets because their message is one unified message of the greatness of God and the glory of God, the true and living God, who we are in relation to God in need of redemption. And that redemption is only found in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have this confidence and let's proceed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.